Hello and welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. And this week we want to talk rugby. Seems like everyone is talking rugby these days, uh, talking about that Grand Slam series on Netflix and, of course, talking about the Six Nations rugby, which is just around the corner. The first clash there in Paris between France and Ireland. Again, bound to be a physical clash. And that's what we want to talk about today because not all sports injuries are visible. And in some cases, the long-term damage can be devastating. Many players at the top level of rugby, including Rugby World Cup winner Steve Thompson of England and Irish players like David Corkery and Dominic Ryan are now suing because of life-altering brain injuries they sustained on the field of play. So on that, I am delighted to say that I am joined this week by neuroscientist Dr. Chris Nowinski. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so as I say, neuroscientist, but also you happen to have a really fascinating background, both in college football for Harvard and then, astonishingly, <laughs> as a professional wrestler. Um, talk to me. First of all, given those that background I've just spoken about there, I have to open with a very basic question. How is your head? My head today is better than it's probably been in 20 years. Um, so I, I had to retire due to getting too many concussions and having chronic symptoms. And like the daily headaches are no longer there. I'm not the same guy I was. And now the question is just, what's my future going to be? How did you end up getting into wrestling, first of all? T -t Talk to me about that. I got a good job consulting in the life sciences industry, but it was, just wasn't my passion when I was you know, 22. And it just so happened that the owner of the firm was also a big wrestling fan. And a conversation led to him making some calls, some old friends, and me getting a tryout with Mr. Wonderful at WCW. And I got hooked. Yeah, I have to say, I knew very little about this world until I interviewed Becky Lynch. It was It's kind of scripted drama, basically, with, with a lot of physicality thrown in. But a lot of that physicality ends up with, with head trauma, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, it's hard to tell because the professionals are so good at it. But once you're there, and especially when you're coming up where the people aren't so as well-trained or as, as athletic, it you're it's 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 sort of life and death in every, every night, you know. You can get dropped on your head, uh, you know. Something's a few inches off, and it and it could be a disaster. And so you you really learn to respect what they do once you've been in there, and realize that two people have to be so synced and coordinated to make this work. And if it doesn't, you know, it, it could be very bad. And then my problem was just a handful of accidents. Uh, primarily accidents, but you know some also in more interesting stories. Not time for led to too many concussions. To you know that I never told anyone about. I only really realized were concussions after the fact because I just thought it was normal to you know have the your vision go double and this you know, this the ceiling change colors and you know have massive headaches after a match after you took a hit because of course you would. Okay, so talk to me exactly what happened. What your your injury, the serious injury that that ended your career. Yeah, it's not that fascinating. It was a regular non-televised show at the Hartford Civic Center, you know, a low energy crowd. So I, I, I ran into a guy named Bubba Ray Dudley's boot in the corner just too fast. And I think he, you know, might have tried to make it look good because, you know, we we're trying to get the crowd back and it just just took my head off. And when I hit the ground, um, and again, it was probably entirely my fault, hit the ground and for, forgot where I was. Like I, 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 you know, we, we knew the end of the match, like you have to talk about that stuff before. And I just was lost. 
And I was like, I don't know what's going on. My head was killing me. And they just kept, um, you know, it, 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 but back then we weren't trained. So I said, I don't know what's happening. I don't remember the match. And they would just tell me what to do next. And so we just finished the match. And, I, and I, at that time, I felt just awful. I roll out of the ring and the trainer stopped me. And I was like, I'm fine. And I just went and hid and just like put my head in my hands, just waiting for this to go away. And it didn't. And so then the next day, when I showed up to the arena, I was still feeling so bad, I almost told them how bad I was feeling. But then I walked into the training room and I saw people with what I consider to be real injuries, you know, getting ready to work. And I was like, I'm not going to take the day off because I feel like I have, you know, the flu or a headache, you know, that just wasn't enough. And so I just kept going to the point where I was telling wrestlers, I, some reason I can't remember the ends of matches. So if I could blank out out there, you know, you have to guide me. And we didn't know enough to say, oh, then maybe you shouldn't be out there at all. That's so scary, though, isn't it? That you would say to somebody, there's something wrong here. I actually, I've stopped being able to remember the moves here. And that your people you were in the ring with weren't saying, there is something wrong with you. You need to get checked out. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, it was a culture of, you know, you don't get paid if you don't work. It's not really like that. But like, that was the perception. You know, they'd lose their confidence in you, et cetera. So, you know, the only reason I stopped and was honest was because I developed and I still have REM behavior disorder. So it's actually the last, the night after the last time I wrestled, I woke up on the floor of a hotel room after apparently uh, acting out a dream, standing on the bed, climbing the wall, jumping through a nightstand, and w waking up for none of this. Um, and then once I woke up on the floor, you know, with this chaos around me, I was like, oh God, like, I think something's wrong. And then I told them and they were like, you're not getting back in the ring until we figure out what's wrong. And it's just, that was the end. Did it take you a while to figure out that what that was? This is REM. This is something that happens when you're in a dream state, is it? Right. Basically, you know, your your brain shuts down your body when you're dreaming, so you don't act out what you're visualizing. And my that that switch broke, and I started acting it out. And I, and I still have episodes to this day. That could be very dangerous, I would imagine. <laughs> it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, you know, people break windows, and you know, <clears throat> the thing. Yeah, it's crazy. At what stage did you get, you know, pulled into this world where you actually started to seriously understand the implications of head trauma in sport? So I was very lucky that WWE, you know, w was willing to send me anywhere to try to get me better. And the, you know, the second time I traveled and sort of the eighth doctor I had met to evaluate me was a guy named Dr. Robert Cantu, who ended up co-founding the Concussion Legacy Foundation with because... He was so far ahead of his time. So he was one of the first people to develop return to play protocols. He wrote them in the 80s and people used them worldwide. And he changed my perspective on concussions in, in, in the first meeting by saying, you know, how many concussions have you had before this? And at that time, you know, this is uh, 2003, I'm, I'm 24 years old. I said, I've never had a concussion. I'm not even sure the last thing was a concussion. And he said, all right, well, how, how many times have you been hit in the head? And he went through all the symptoms, double vision, ringing in your ears, forgetting what you're doing. And I said, that happens all the time. What's the, you know, that's a ding. And he goes, well, those are concussions by another name. And it was just like this moment of like, how the hell have I not known that all these times I get hit and I don't know what's going on, that that's a concussion and that I needed to rest my brain and there might be long-term issues. Like, and I was so blown away that that's when I got so bothered that while I had these daily headaches, and I couldn't go back to work. I just started reading and I would go to the Harvard Medical School Library and I photocopied every study ever on concussions and I read them all um, to try to figure out, A, could I find something to get me better? And B, you know, what, what are we really, what's really going on here? 
And that's when I, in that process, that's when I sort of uncovered that the the NFL was actively trying to minimize the concussion story. That we've known about concussions for 100 years. And there were times in the 50s where people were so concerned about them that, that the Harvard neurosurgeon used to say, three concussions in your life and you should retire in your life. That got, in the modern era when I was there, changed to, you know, for, for weird reasons, three concussions in a season and take the season off. Like this whole three concussions thing, that was built off his three concussions and retire. So we took them more seriously in the past. And that's when I realized, you know, I, th I thought as my, I, I thought, A, it's crazy that we're all out there banging our heads and we don't know what's happening and they're not even telling us what these concussions are. And so I thought, I'm going to take a try at changing the culture. I would go talk to the wrestlers. I'd go talk to my football buddies. Nobody knew. And I thought that wasn't fair. And so I started writing a book. It became Head Games Football's Concussion Crisis that came out in 06. That was 10 chapters about concussions and how we needed to change. And one chapter about CTE, which became much bigger you know, after the book became published because I started seeking out the brains of athletes when they died to prove that that was a problem too. Yeah, and I want to talk about that uh, in a little while as well. But going back to your mission then to spread the word uh, and you've kind of become evangelical, if I can use that term, in, in, you know, getting the word out there to players and to coaches. What was the initial reaction to you when, when you went back to, you, the, the, you know, the people you used to play with or the people you used to wrestle with? I would say there was a small fraction who completely understood it and would start confessing problems. And I remember that there were two guys on the Harvard team who retired while I was there from concussions. And we all thought that if they retired, they got out in time. And I reached out, they, they still had chronic problems. I was like, oh, there's something to this. And then there was a small group who thought, um, you know, that I'd say the vast majority of people thought I was crazy. <laughs> the vast majority of people thought I was throwing my life away. I remember uh, one of my old coaches saying, you know, Chris, there are real doctors who look into this. And don't you think if there was a problem, they would have told us by now? And I was like, hey, you know, you would think so. But there's a lot of reasons they're not. And I, yeah, I studied sociology as an undergrad. So I sort of understood that this was less a medical problem. That wasn't in dispute. It was a cultural problem that we as a, it wasn't good for the culture of sports to treat these seriously. And that had trickled into this sort of you know, global cover up of what was really happening when you give somebody a brain injury or you hit them in the head a thousand times a year. Yeah, I've been reading um, a while back. I read uh, an interview with Sam Peters, who I, if you've, you're familiar with Sam Peters. Yeah, I've known Sam for over a decade on this. Yeah, yeah so Sam, obviously a journalist at top of his game, and he has spoken and written about how the hostility he, he received when he tried to raise this as an issue within rugby, uh, within world rugby, within English rugby. Um, and David Corkery, who's a, a was had several caps for Ireland, over twenty caps for Ireland uh, in rugby. Again, he has spoken about how he feels almost guilty, like he had to go and see the pictures of his brain himself to to accept and know that really whatever was happening to him wasn't genetic. It wasn't coming from somewhere else. That it was actual physical damage that you could you could point to in a in a in a, a scan. Uh, there, there, that culture is still not, you know, that still hasn't been sorted, has it? No. I mean, we've made small improvements here and there, which which I'm glad we have. But the, 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 
at the high at the highest levels in most sports, we're not even close to where we should be, based on what we know and based on the ethics of creating this system under which guys like me are recruited because we're big and strong and fast and thrown out there to go damage our brains without the proper education or protections. Um, that that's still not, it's still not there. There's still a meat grinder, as we as I would say. Talk to me about rugby in particular um, and the risks, the particular risks that are associated with playing that sport. So, sure. Yeah, I mean, the the risks of, of rugby are not that dissimilar from the risks of American football. You have a very high concussion rate because people get hit in the head making tackles uh, and in other situations. And you also have a very high repetitive head impact rate that you're involved in so many collisions that your head is struck or your brain is accelerated even when your head isn't struck uh, enough times that in some people it will trigger neurodegeneration, usually chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, but it can be other diseases that you have a greater risk of developing from getting too many hits to the head. There, there is another issue as well in, I think, the culture of rugby on these islands here because rugby went professional. And with professional rugby, the size, the bulk of players changed. Yes. Yes. Two, th- yeah, two, two major things have happened with the professionalization of rugby, probably three. Well, you know, one is that people started training year round. So you can, you know, we, the, the stats are there. You can see how much bigger and stronger. And the, the collisions are dramatically bigger than they used to be. But your brains haven't gotten any tougher. So that's number one. Number two, uh, there was an incentive to play and practice more. And so what used to be sort of a relaxed thing because people had real jobs, became a, you need to tackle every day for some of these guys. And so CT is very much a dose response issue, not unlike smoking and lung cancer. So people went from smoking two cigarettes a week to two packs a day. And we're talking about a lot more head impacts. Um, And then uh, the third point, uh, I've already forgotten because I've been hitting head too much. But uh, other things, you know, it, it's just, it is a very different game than it used to be. And and therefore, we need to know, and everyone needs to be clear on what we're seeing in the older rugby players is the tip of the iceberg to what we're going to see in the modern era rugby players, especially those who played when I was playing in the 90s and, and, and 2000s, uh, even through mid to, you know, 2015 or whenever we started doing, you know, real reform in rugby, which is still slow, um, that group. It took more exposure than any rugby group in history. So is that what you're saying, that we literally still have not seen the fallout, the, the, the worst case? Oh, God, case? no. No. No, because, uh, you know, the most, you know, it's, CT is hard to understand in people in midlife, right? In our brain bank, we have now 1,400 brains in the brain bank at Boston University, nearly 1,000 cases of CT. Two-thirds and CT, of those... just explain CT. CT, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a neurodegenerative disease that is triggered by repetitive head impacts, not necessarily concussions. Um, so essentially you get, you get these small lesions in vulnerable parts of your brain to trauma. When you twist a brain rapidly, your bra- the surface of your brain has hills and valleys. It has cortex. It's all crammed in there. At the bottom of those valleys, the energy gets driven based on physics. And around blood vessels, it'll start, you know, imagine it starts micro tears and those things become inflamed. And if you, there's something about getting hit in the head constantly that will cause that to not uh, turn into a degenerative process that spreads for the rest of your life. 
And so in young people, as we've seen in people as young as 17, we've seen advanced disease down in an 18-year-old as of last year. Um, you'll see these just tiny lesions you can see under a microscope. And then for most people, it will just rapidly, or not rapidly, they can very slowly expand uh, for the rest of their life until, you know, they, till they develop dementia, which can be as early, we've seen it as early as people's 50s uh, on a regular basis where they're no longer able to function. So I, I interrupt you there. You were saying you've, what, 400 brains? No, 1,400 Fourteen, brains. 1,400. 1,400. Yeah. Yeah, when we, when we started, there were only two. Um, when we started the Brain Bank at BU, there were only four confirmed NFL cases in, in the world. And now we have 400. And the problem is, like, at that, if you think back to 2007 when I started doing this and, and getting brains for study, the NFL would always say it's just one, it's just two, it's just three, it's just four. Now and now they don't because it's 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 not only four hundred; it's ninety three percent of those who've been given to us. So families of NFL players are better at diagnosing this disease than most doctors are at diagnosing anything. They're accurate ninety three percent of the time, um, which means this is very widespread in that community that's had long careers. And what we learn is that while this disease spreads, symptoms develop. So the, the one that's very clear is progressive cognitive impairment. And that usually is sort of the um, later in life. That's that's 40s, 50s, 60s, but usually 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, the other part is we think there's a relationship between changes in behavior, neurobehavioral changes. Um, it could be uh, impulse control. It could be mood. It could be uh, aggression. Like people change and it's often due to, it's often re related to you know, behavior. Yeah, that was one of the things that David Corkery was describing, actually, that he found himself, his emotions were completely out of control. He would be standing, chatting to somebody on the street and his eyes would well up. He'd have to walk away from them. He couldn't finish. He was coaching. He couldn't finish <clears throat> the team talk without, without burst, you know, crying. So that's that's a classic symptom of. Well, so no, I wouldn't call it. it it's something we consistently see. And so the, and the question becomes, is, you know, what we're trying to get our hands on is, is what exactly is this? And the problem is, we, you know, the, the industry has been telling us for years, that happens to regular people too, right? It, it, the problem is it's a nonspecific symptom. And so, you know, we're always fighting against the idea that, uh, you know, they lost, their, they, they don't have their career anymore. Everyone gets sad. We're going to have a transition and all that. And that's true for some people. But this is happening, I think, uh, from my experience, way too much. And, it's, and it doesn't get, you know, it doesn't always get better. And so it's either, it's either normal and then what you're going through is what other people go through who have these issues, or it's CTE and you're losing neurons and that's changing your brain functions. Or the one that's that's gaining steam is that this is the reflection of the traumatic brain injuries that led to CTE. And so it's not necessarily the tau protein that is that is the hallmark, the diagnostic aspect of this degeneration. It is the fact that traumatic brain injury is also causing damage to your white matter and the connections in your brain the interface between white matter and gray matter and and all these other types of brain damage that are harder to picture, harder to describe, um, but we know are there. And we and that's, that's the other, no one questions that traumatic brain injuries change people. And so, it, you know, so I think in a lot of cases it's, it's due to playing the game, but we don't know if we're going to be blaming the traumatic brain injuries themselves or the CTE. Uh, and then... Yeah, and that's why it's so hard to have a discussion around. So, so if someone's having midlife problems, I, I would tell them it doesn't mean you have CT. It might be just 
the brain injuries that are not going to continue to degenerate into dementia and get treatment and you might be okay. But a lot of the times, um, and we need to continue to do these studies, it is, you know, those people also have CT. And it's a precursor to cognitive and, and Yeah, and, and then uh, so they will have, yeah, those cognitive issues later on. Okay, now, we obviously, the r- rugby has introduced protocols, concussion protocols. Um, I know you've looked at those. Are they adequate to protect elite players at least? Well, concussion protocols are a trade-off between the needs of the athlete and the needs of the sport. And so in real life, if this is your child and you see them get hit in the head in a, in a rugby match and you think they might have a concussion enough to pull them out, you never put them back in. Because everybody knows that symptoms might be delayed. And if you're concerned enough in that moment, you know, then then you sit them out for two days and if, if two days they're fine, then you let them go back to practice. But because of professional rugby needs these players out there in that game at that time and it's part of the the dance... We for we get we only allowed we do a ten minute minimum evaluation and then throw them back in if they don't have symptoms and knowing that we're going to be wrong sometimes, and knowing that the players will develop a headache and all these other issues they probably won't tell us because of the pressure to keep playing. So, so I would say for the first part everyone needs to understand protocols already giving a lot of ground on safety, but um, the one the one thing that I like about the rugby protocol is that minimum ten minutes evaluation time. We don't have that at the NFL. Uh, or other sports. And I do think that does help give time for adrenaline to wear off and, and players more time to reflect and self-report and the tests to reveal the deficits that will force us to keep them out. And and the timeout then, 21-day minimum uh, f- and I think 23 days for, for, for young, for the under-20s. Is that is that adequate from, you know, what we know about this now? Well, I mean... It, it's dramatically better than it was, so I'm glad that is a that's a recent change. But I'm glad that's there, um, and I think you know we, we basically the school of thought of no, no one's brain is truly recovered in that first month. You can do sorts of research, expensive research tests that aren't part of the standard you know medical evaluation that will show your brain is not normally functioning. But you know we've been at a place where it's been a f- you take a few days off maybe 6 days 5 or 6 days off and go back so 21 is a j- leap from that and i and i'll take it as a uh, as a reasonable place to put it considering the pressures of professional sports and considering this is people's jobs okay well that's at elite level what about casual weekend uh kickabouts or a school play school yeah school, i mean a minimum 23 days Makes sense, especially when you're talking about someone who had a super minor concussion and they feel fine for 22 of those 23 days. Like that, that point, yeah, go back. But I think it's important to realize it's a minimum. You know, there was just a study put out yesterday uh, by Dr. Willie Stewart and colleagues showing that a third of people still have symptoms, you know, months later. And so about, I think it was 30% of sports concussions who reported to a hospital had symptoms at three months. So a lot of people have symptoms much longer. And it's okay to take a longer period of time out than 23 days. But while you have symptoms, are you very vulnerable then? If you if you get another blow, while you still are experiencing symptoms from, from an original concussion? You're, you're vulnerable to, a, you're making the situation much worse. Some people do die from going back while symptomatic. And, you know, Ben Robinson's a well-known case in the UK 
Uh, we have a lot of well-known cases here. It's still that's still rare, but it's a good enough reason not to put people back. Uh, but you're you're definitely going to make things worse if you go back while symptomatic, mean, meaning chronic symptoms, lifelong issues. Like you know, th that was my issue. Was I kept wrestling on a concussion and made it a 15-year headache. Is there a way to play this game safely? To to you know, I'm thinking of of people whose children are are getting involved in rugby at you know as uh, in their early teens. Well, I mean, it, 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 the question is safely relative to other sports and activities, right? So, like every sport, you're going to have collisions, accidents, con you know, some concussions. Uh, you know, I'm of the philosophy after doing this for so many years that we shouldn't be giving children CT. We shouldn't expose them to the repetitive head impacts that we know are going to cause it. So, we've been advocating. We have a program called Stop Hitting Kids in the Head. We've been pushing the football codes, soccer co codes, and rugby to not have tackle versions or of the sport or heading in soccer before 14. So I think if we start there, those sports are safe till 14. And if you do start tackling before then, things start to get risky. After that, um, I think we just have to reform the games to minimize the risk as best we can and educate everybody that in tackling sports, you are at risk for CT. If you're heading a soccer ball, you are at risk for CT. And it's just a question of how many times you're hit. And if you're going to start now and you're successful, you better hope you, you minimize those reps each year or else you're going to be at a super high risk. And that's something that I think people need to face is that like I'm, I would be nervous about putting my son in American football. He probably never will because he's going to be like me and big and strong and fast. And if he starts... He's going to play through college, and that's an, it's going to be at least 10 years. And 10 years, as we play it today, is uh, you know, most of the guys that we study have had CTE. So he's not going to play because I know he'll be successful. So you know, if you're going to put your child in these sports, you might want to pray that they, they aren't so they don't play too long and get this disease. Again, because you statistically are looking at, uh, you know, how is there a time frame? Is there like... You get away with it if you just, you know, if you're just at it for two, three years. Is there? I mean, so that argument has been made. So in American football, what I tell people is don't play till high school. And then if you really think you need those lessons of, you know, toughness and grit and collisions, and that's that's yours, what your son needs, there's diminishing returns. So play for a year, play for another year, learn those lessons. But if you haven't learned those lessons after two years, you're, you're probably never going to learn those lessons of, of toughness and grit and all that stuff. So... Um, just know that each additional year you play, you, the less the the it, it new lessons you're going to learn decrease, and the risk of CT increases. So yes, there is probably a place where you know a few hundred hits to the head is not going to cause CT, but a few thousand might. You say they reform these games, but of course, you know a big draw to these games. People love seeing those big clashes, those big guys going at each other. Like that's the drama and the thrill of watching those games for a lot of people. So there's going to be big tension there if you're going to, to try and dilute some of that drama. There is tension. I, I think the example I would say for rugby, and, and it's happening, but is what's happened in the NFL, which is the NFL players realizing CT's a risk have fought to almost never hit in practice. So now they're just hitting 17 games a year. And in those games, they've made a lot of reforms so that you, you aren't supposed to get those hard hits to the head. And they, the numbers are down. And so even though everyone, the, the public has fought this as making the sport soft for a decade, um, the game is 
much safer now and it's more popular than ever. We just had a record number of people watch a playoff game on on uh, Sunday night. 50 million people in the U.S. watching this game, which people have decried as too soft now, but it's not. So I think rugby can get to a point where, and, and they've done this at some levels, you know, don't hit in practice, learn the game, teach the game another way, and then tweak the game you're playing to minimize head impacts. And again, I, the other side of this is adults can do dangerous jobs if they want to. So now we now I'm comparing rugby to worse, you know, serving in the military, the police or firemen. Like that's a dangerous job too. Uh, and people, there's a lot of steps made to protect those folks uh, to make it as safe as it reasonably can be. And if rugby falls into that category for pros, that's fine. But we just have to be honest. We have to tell the players the game will cause CTE if you get hit in the head enough. Do players get in touch with you from this end, the side of the world, the side of the Atlantic? Yeah, all the time. And I, you know, and, and I spent a few days with Steve Thompson, who you mentioned in the intro, uh, when he pledged his brain to our our new brain bank at Oxford University. And, you know, spending that time with him helped me appreciate, you know, because I would read all these stories about all these UK rugby players stepping forward in their 40s, which is earlier than we tend to have people step forward in the in the U.S. And I, you know, I wasn't sure what was going on, but then hearing his story and understanding, you know, how he's lost jobs and everything because of his cognition and, you know, it's, there's, you know that, that this is very real and it's a, very much a struggle, you know, um, just made me more passionate about trying to extend our influence there to make the game safer. Uh, anyone from Ireland in touch with you? Certainly over the years, I've had people from Ireland in touch and, and spent some time in Dublin, uh, you know, uh, meeting with athletes, um, you know, probably just over 10 years ago. So, but I, yeah, as of today, right now, I'm not, I haven't talked to anyone in the last few months, but it, I mean, it's, it's, it's an issue there for sure. I want, I don't know if you're familiar with our, our, uh, Gaelic sports, the, the hurling and, and Gaelic football oh, yeah. here. So when I was there, I spent time with Desi Farrell, who was the head of the, everyone knows. At the time, him, right? he was the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, Gaelic yeah, players. Exactly. So yeah. he, we went and met with the union and, and, and talked about all this stuff. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, those sports, again, are, 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 can be risky, but they also, because repetitive head impacts are not, designed to be part of it, they can be easily reformed, in my mind. Yeah, that's not, it's not a, an essential uh, core element of what the sport is about. No, and actually, I remember watching a hurling match on TV while I was there and seeing that every, uh, people had this opportunity to really knock people out, and they wouldn't, because the, 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 the way the, the game was designed, you had to go shoulder to shoulder, and it was really more a respectful way of hitting people than what I was used to. You said you wouldn't let your, your son play... American football or NFL or college football. Would you let your son play schools rugby? I probably, yeah. I, you know, I, I hadn't considered that because it's not going to really be an option where we live. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, again, I wouldn't let him tackle before 14. And then the question would be, you know, would he want to try it for a few years? Yeah. I, I, if the game does, re- I, I have 10 years to decide that. If the game does respond and reform, maybe. Maybe, but right now, right now, where it is, if we're not going to be honest about the risk of CT with with the families, I'm not putting them out there. Chris, thank you so much. Uh, uh, That's a real education, really, really informative, and I think really, really important for people to hear over here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for helping spread the word ahead of the Six Nations. 
And that was Dr. Chris Nowinski. Thanks for listening to Upfront, the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can message us on social media at RT Upfront or via WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is 87 And don't forget to tune in to Upfront on Monday evening at 10.35 on RTE1 and, of course, on the RTE player. And I'll speak to you then.